0: Welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast, where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this
1: is Cole. And today we have a fun episode for you where you'll hear about storytelling, folklore, and some other things. Mike actually is here with me now. Mike, I understand you spoke recently with Josh Smith about these topics. I did. Josh is somebody who I've known for a while. I know you have met him on occasion as well, Cole. And he is a man who has done many things in his life. He is an analyst. He was... Uh, also a student of many things, I think biochemistry, as well as he's a boxing instructor, I think, at one point in his life. He has had a wide range of experiences. And one of the things that he is also very familiar with is the study of folklore. And I wanted to get a chance to pick his brain about his knowledge of this area, because it is a really interesting way to apply a specific lens to data visualization. Turns out that folklore isn't just fairy tales and ghost stories, which is kind of what I thought it was before I started talking to him. But it's really more about how we communicate with one another, both informally and formally a little bit in our different cultures, in our different communities. And when you think about it, this is something that a storyteller should be pretty interested in exploring and understanding. We talked about a number of things that had to do with folklore and storytelling and how that wraps into our data viz world. I hope that you enjoy it and you hear it and that you have a few of your questions answered or maybe it raises some more questions than it answers along the way. Sounds super interesting. I'm definitely looking forward to hearing it. And I hope those who tuned in today are as well. With that, let's jump into the episode. Josh Smith, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Sure. It's a real pleasure to get to talk to you again. And before we get into folklore specifically, I do want to let you talk a little bit about your experience as a data analyst. Now, I know that you have always been interested in story and narrative. You've been able to weave this into your public work and your private work in the past. And it's always interesting to me how you're able to do this when you're working in this field of Mostly exploratory side of things, working with dashboards. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the work that you've done in the past and how you've been able to incorporate storytelling into it.
0: Yeah, I got my my start as a general business intelligence consultant, and you know, prior to uh, working with data at all. Uh, my brother-in-law, as I was kind of dissatisfied in a job that I was in, my brother-in-law said, I I, I think you could be good working with data. Uh, you just need to learn SQL. And I had no idea what SQL was. The idea of typing letters directly into a screen in a way that wasn't meant for like stories or writing, but was actually meant to tell computers how to think was uh, it was as far from a concept as I ever thought I could learn. But I really wanted a different job, and this seemed quite exciting. So, you know, I, I it took me a couple months to feel like I had a grasp um, on SQL. Just such a a different world to break into. But I managed to pass the test and, and got a job, and I started mostly doing ETL, right—that moving data from point A to point B. And it was in the financial industry. Um, I was I was a consultant, and thought it was really weird that. They wanted me to consult other people because I didn't know anything, but <laughs> apparently that's how consulting works a lot of the time. That's um, just the model that, that a lot of companies work under. And they, they put me with really smart people that taught me a lot of really valuable things. But one day they put me on a reporting assignment, just building these reports. And some people working on this really large engagement were designing some charts and one day someone asked me to pick the colors on a chart. What am I supposed to do here? Like just, just colors, just pick them. Um, why, why are you asking me to do that? So I knew I was missing something. If someone was asking me to pick the colors on a chart, I knew that there was like work to be done, but I couldn't fathom what in the world needed to be done there. Why that was a task that needed to be completed. Just pick colors. And I started researching and I, I, don't know, I spent like a few days and was getting worried. Like, am I spending too much time not enough? Um, and you know, sent it back, and they put it into a chart. And someone said, "This is really good." I'm like it was good. I picked colors after doing a lot of research. So the next assignment that rolled up, they they put me on this data visualization engagement all by myself. I'd never worked with a database tool. Again, we're back to that consulting model, learn on the fly. <laughs> and I was working with Click at the time, and I I really bumbled. The beginning of this project. I think I, I overthought it in the wrong directions and underthought it in the right directions. But the company put me with some really careful mentors, and I think they saw some growth opportunity and they were willing to take a risk and let me fail a little bit to learn. Let me have, I should say, the opportunity to succeed or fail, the sink or swim. And when they noticed I was starting to sink a little bit, they they gave me the opportunity to ask questions and created that space for me. And I started to learn about this magical space of data visualization and all the interesting things that go into it. So uh, I started working with a team of designers. My entry into data visualization was actually working more closely with designers than I was with analysts. I did very little SQL. It was more of just figuring out how to get something to look the way that designer said it should. Mm-hmm. And that created, from the very beginning, this really user-centric focus, thinking about data storytelling, where the person engaging with what we make is the protagonist of the story. Not ourselves, not someone in the data, they're the protagonist of the story. Over time, I became a data scientist, and that kind of carried through. And one day I was asked to make a, make the data story. PowerPoint presentation, basically. That's the traditional data scientist deliverable. At least it was a while ago. And so I was doing some complex statistical models, had to do a lot of learning and was carefully guided to learn some of those things. But then it came time for this presentation and the designer was on vacation. And so the task fell to me. I suddenly felt overwhelmed. This was all new. How do I put it together? And I started trying to think like a designer, started doing some research, tried to do some really fast reading before this project needed to be turned in, and then just started to connect things. So what's interesting is it was actually reading the book Storytelling with Data where those connections started to happen. That book made me start seeing how my own background and some of my own experience connects more strongly to what I was doing. And from then on, it was just continually bringing in these paradigms, these lenses of looking at the world from my previous experience into what I was doing as an analyst. And the harder I look, the closer I see the relationships.
1: I mean, you refer to yourself as a data jackalope in this, this mythical is combination of, of lots of other creatures. Maybe you could explain the parts of you that make up the jackalope.
0: Yeah, the... The jackalope is this fun kind of mostly Western Midwest folk creature. It's really quirky. So you've got like antelope antlers, the jackalope. So antelope plus a jackrabbit antlers on a rabbit. They're still small and not the size of a jackalope. Um, but it's so quirky. And there's so many like little adorable things about the folk tales that are shared. Like apparently it's beverage of choice is just whiskey. (laughs) It only breeds when lightning strikes. And when cowboys get together on the Western landscape, if they still do this, I'm not a cowboy. And they sing at night around the campfire. Apparently the jackalope is supposed to sing in the background at a real high pitch tenor. And just a really fun, quirky creature. Uh, Some towns claim ownership to it. There's taxidermy art around this where taxidermists will put antlers on a on a on a rabbit where it started to stand out where i started seeing kind of like relating to this folk creature and the stories around it, it was it's this combination of things that don't normally go together and my my initial undergrad education was very quantitative it was in behavioral economics and I got burnt out one day, had an existential crisis while I was watching an econometrics professor write really complicated Greek letters on a board. I had admittedly, I'd just seen Dead Poets Society, so (laughs) that probably had messed with my head a little bit, and I just walked out of class, dropped everything, and signed up for what seemed fun. And folklore was one of the first things that that I jumped into and gravitated toward, and I, I loved it. So I have this background that's quantitative and qualitative. I've been to grad school for folklore. I've been to grad school for biostatistics. I was not able to complete either of those programs for very different reasons, but this weird combination of the quantitative and the qualitative, the sort of like arts and humanities, plus the harder sciences and math ends up in this really it's just a weird combination. And a lot of people have told me they don't expect me to be good at the two different kinds of things that I, that I am. And an important reason I call out the jackalope is it's, it's this nice contrast against the unicorn. Mm-hmm. We talk about the unicorn as like a person that can do it all. And anyone that knows me will know that like, like, A unicorn is not a good way to like describe me because I'm nowhere near as graceful or (laughs) elegant as a unicorn. I'm also, uh, I can't do it all. And in fact, where I tend to really exceed is jumping in and looking at a problem from a really unique angle because I have all these different experiences. But what I lack is, The wisdom that comes from really specializing in one area. So if I don't have someone there to tell me you're about to walk off a cliff, I'll just keep on running. And I can find a really interesting way to run off the edge of that cliff. So I work really well with a group of people and with other specialists, I can bring a unique way of looking at things, but I'm not a unicorn. I can't do it all by myself. And so the jackalope was this really nice way to describe having a weird combination of skills, but in a way that contrasts this idea of the unicorn that can do everything by themselves.
1: And also the idea maybe that the unicorn, there's only one of the unicorn. Yes. Uh, and so we should treat it with reverence and awe uh, and kowtow to its every whim, where like, the mythical jackalope is, oh, well, the jackalope is a partner in the campfire sing-alongs of cowboys. Like There are maybe... Many jackalopes. You can be a jackalope. It's not a competitive um, mythical creature or folkloric creature. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to switch to using folkloric. First of all, I started off by giving my own understanding of what folklore is, but maybe I should let you give more of a layperson's definition of what folklore actually is.
0: I have read approximately five times as many folklore textbooks after graduating or after, sorry, dropping out of graduate school as I did in graduate school. Um, I've actually just ordered a really major textbooks that I'm super excited to dig in on on ghost telling and ghost narratives. So there is a continued interest and passion, but I do want to qualify that if anybody hears this and wants to get more in the field, they should not take my word for it. They should go uh, look at like the American Folklore Society and find some Folklorists that are talking about things are interested and learn from the trained academics. But having said that, we can't unpack what it means. It's an interesting question to ask because folklorists have been arguing about that a lot throughout the entire discipline. It's, it's a kind of a nebulous concept. But a couple of my favorite definitions Dan Ben Amos was a folklorist that defined folklore as artistic communication in small groups. And more recently, one of my favorite folklorists, Lynn McNeil, she said, it's informally transmitted traditional culture. So some of the things you're seeing in there is a leaning toward groups of people. There's a strong social element. There's a leaning toward tradition, but there's a definite bend toward the informal. So if a company releases a corporate handbook, and that corporate handbook has some like jokes or memes or stories in there. That's not folklore. But when you have individuals in a company that might be sharing memes about the handbook in a very informal way, that could be folklore. And it can be helpful to just kind of showcase some examples. And some folklorists have just tried to define it by listing as many examples as they can possibly think of. Alan Dundee was one that did that. So the few that came off the top of my head for today would be fairy tales legends urban legends ghost stories and hauntings which has become really interesting to me of late children's nursery rhymes as a dad those it's hard for me to read a nursery rhyme to my kid and then not want to like go on wikipedia and start unpacking everything behind it Uh, jokes there's material folklore so like quilts or we studied chainsaw carving one time that was really interesting The phenomenon known as Cincinnati chili. We had an entire like two week unit on that (laughs) since I went to Ohio State to unpack the phenomenon known as Cincinnati chili, fan fiction memes. I know some of these are things we say, some of these things are things we do, and then some of them are materials. And I think that last part is really important because when we talk about data, is sometimes behaving like folklore. It's less like a fairy tale, but much more like something akin to quilting or fan fiction. So we should draw a line between I'm at work and I've been given requirements to make a dashboard and I make a dashboard that, that to me, I, I don't even know how I could apply a folklore lens to it. But when you look at, you know, the subreddit data is beautiful or the subreddit data is ugly. When you look at like the Tableau community or people sharing casual things they've made in the data visualization society or in the storytelling with data community, that's where I I start to see data visualization as a sort of folk practice and where that lens has helped me ground myself and think about this because there is a traditional element. There are things in quilt making that we kind of stick to patterns that are appreciated practices that are shared and taught as a good way to do things. And there's a reason why we make these and share these in communities. And you start to see something very similar in folklore where we have these traditional ways of doing things. You can even think of like chart types start to become a a sort of tradition. There's ways we make bar charts. There's ways we encode with length. There's patterns around that, but the community also likes to play and experiment Mm -hmm. with things. And that's really big in folklore is that it's not just the same tradition carried over and over and over again, but there's this dynamic nature to it where people add their own little twists. There's variants and things that are successful variants that function really strongly for a community can start to be more and more adopted, more and more shared and become tradition. Whereas things that quit functioning for a community say exploding 3d pie charts as a favorite for this particular podcast those things quit functioning for a community and you start to see those functioning less and less and so they get shared less and that that to me feels very similar to patterns and traditions in what we talked about with quilt making in my classes
1: Yeah, the example that I was thinking of as you were talking about that was the like bar chart races. Yes. Like animated bar charts where there was a period of time where in the community, bar chart races became very popular. And you mentioned like subreddits like information is beautiful where you would see them posted for one shining moment constantly. And almost to the point where you'd have to say, okay, uh, Wednesday is racing bar chart day (laughs) because there were so many of them. And now I feel like I don't see them that much anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have these traditional elements like the bar chart, but then somebody added a variant. They animated it and made the axis move and it got really exciting. And then next thing, that variant kind of lost its function. The function was this novelty and excitement factor. But once that novelty wore off, there wasn't a ton going for that chart as a function. And so it didn't stick around as a tradition. I think the bar chart race is a perfect example. I also think about people making their resumes as dashboards. Mm -hmm. When I first saw that, it really reminded me of a paper that I saw that was examining job interviews and folklore in job interviews, where people would tell personal narratives as part of a job interview. And a folklorist went and studied that. And when we see these traditions coming to life and the sort of artistic communication through people expressing themselves in a dashboard or interactive job resume, it feels really similar to what I read in that paper.
1: And is any knowledge that you have about that make that uh, them appear to be a more valuable candidate, or does that just build a community if they get hired? Like, what what is the implication?
0: Well that's a really uh that, that's really interesting. So from a hiring manager perspective, I have talked to a lot of hiring managers where it actually some of those interactive resumes made it harder to get a job because there was like a really specific workflow and those kind of interfered with that workflow. Whether that workflow was we use this HR tool and we can upload a document but there's no way for like a tableau dashboard to fit in there. So we saw some challenges there, but from the folklore perspective, it just depends on the community. So when you look at like the Tableau community, people really celebrate these. They're almost, I heard one person describe it as like, it feels like my baseball trading card." And there's some really, there's some really beautiful meaning that's being created as people express their identities as individuals, but they're also expressing their identities as part of a group when they communicate themselves this way. But you carry that out to other groups and that context changes and other groups might not value it as much. So in some situations where people are more ingrained in the Tableau community or the data visualization community, you might see people really appreciate those and immediately situate themselves in the value of this kind of expression. In other situations, you might not feel, you might not get that kind of appreciation from an audience. So- that's the and that's the kind of folkloric lens of it is it's not the same function for everyone, but it really varies depending upon the context.
1: Yeah, maybe that's my fault for assuming the intent of creating the visual resume in the first place, that the intent might not be so that I can successfully apply to this job. It might be just to have a more personal way of representing my own professional history in this field to other people in this field to this community of people who are fellow enthusiasts and practitioners in this field. And I guess that does get into what you were saying, is folklore is about communities as well, and the communication within and across communities here. How does this discussion of folklore apply to data visualization here? How does it apply to the way that we might communicate with data? I know you've talked about this idea of there are four functions that folklore serves so is there any overlap amongst maybe we should explain what the four functions are and then if there's any overlap between those and data
0: visualization it's a really complex topic and we can walk through i think them together because i'd love to hear some of your ideas when i outline these but it is worth calling out that i don't think most data visualization is folklore and so Mm -hmm. re-emphasizing that when we make these casual things to share with each other, that's where I think we can start applying a folklore lens to understand this. Mm -hmm. Um, When we think about that dashboard you had to make for work, I don't see it being folklore or folklore helping understand that. So these four functions of folklore come from a folklorist named Bascom. And his first function says folklore lets people escape from repressions imposed upon them by society. And when I hear that, I think about all these times I see people creating these personal works of creative data visualization expression, and then they slap this disclaimer on it when they share it. I'm like, I know this wouldn't work for a professional dashboard, but I wanted to play. And there's something there that, that really makes me think of this first function because we, we go to work on someone else's schedule. And I spend my entire day working on someone else's to-do list and doing it in a way that meets their requirements, not mine. And then if I'm in this community, I come home and I pull up the same software. I'm doing the same kind of work, but I'm doing it my way and on my time. And I'm breaking those rules that have been impressed upon me. And I think that's a way to escape and free myself from that and really start to overturn some of these rules. That to me feels like this casual data is functioning in a really similar way to kind of let me escape.
1: I think there's debate still about what we consider best practice. Now, some of the things that we think of as best practices, we have done a lot more research over the last few years. We know scientifically some of these work, but we also know that some of these are best practices just because somebody with a big voice said that they were many years ago. And we've just taken it on faith that that is the case. And so it sounds to me like this is this escape is also escape from the idea of having to use best practices in a way to explore and see, well, maybe this would work. And maybe this can be something that I bring back into something I do create for work. Because as it turns out, this actually does make sense, not just to me, but to somebody else I showed it to. And without that ability to play, without that ability to explore... You would never know if there was a better way to do it. So I could see that in the community, the community of practice, the informal communities where you develop and hone your skills, before you then go back into you know your your work where you are, like you said, where your time is not your own, where you are prescribed to do certain things, but the manner in which you do them, maybe you have the opportunity to expand on those.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree on that role of best practices and. I think they're good. They'll get us in the right direction, but they can also be uh, they can also be these sort of limiting constraints on how we express ourselves. And when we get home, we want to take those constraints off and be who we are. That gets to the second element or the second function: folklore validates culture, justifying its rituals and institutions to those that perform and observe them. And what comes to mind immediately for this? for me is the hatred of pie charts. And there are formal reasons that we might hate pie charts. But if you look at like, I I have a love hate relationship with the comment section on subreddits as anyone should. But I love looking at comments in like data is beautiful or data is ugly with like a little bit of a, a folklorist lens, like people performing these comments as an audience they're evaluating, but the comments are like a performance in of themselves. We have like quotes or meme references in there you can look at conferences or people providing feedback in the data viz society. Hating on pie charts is kind of its own meme or joke. And data visualization is an occupational folk group. There's the formal reasons behind it, but there's also the, the joke or, or trope of hating pie charts. I think there's a lot of rhetoric underneath that functioning, like that best practice and that joke that rhetoric being what we value as a community are things that help us interpret precisely. Mm -hmm. And that's what a pie chart doesn't do well. So when we have these memes or references or jokes about how much we hate pie charts, what we're really telling and communicating to each other is it's important that we communicate precisely and pie charts don't do that. And we, we reinforce this value of precise interpretation through these sorts of jokes there could be any other sort of a meme or joke about another chart that didn't work that well but the tradition is specifically around pie charts and that there's something about why that's a tradition for us
1: yeah there's no meme about this should have been a ternary chart it has to be something that is popular but also the comment like like you said the the commentary around it also has to be very well known and the position has to be generally accepted. Otherwise, otherwise, the jokes don't land, or the signaling doesn't actually signal what it is meant to signal to the people who are reading the comments.
0: Yeah, there's in folklore, there's a, a lens, like an analytic framework called performance theory by a folklorist named Bauman. And you talked about context, and part of the context is the audience evaluation, But when he wrote that book, I think in the 70s, I don't think he envisioned a world in which Redditors could click an upvote or downvote button, right? We have audience evaluation is taking on like a very data driven approach now uh, that I just don't think any folklorist prior to this age really envisioned was possible.
1: Yeah. If you were writing the book in the 70s and you're thinking of, well, a gathering of people judging each other's comments is like a town hall. It's mm-hmm. and, and we have Robert's Rules of Order for that. And we don't have like our electron. Every site has its own electronic version of that, I suppose. Yeah. Any site that allows comments. And usually it's a beleaguered <laughs> moderator <laughs> yeah. trying to handle it. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Even the idea of getting quote unquote ratioed on Twitter. Right. That's... Uh-huh an interesting audience evaluation from performance theory. Uh, um, but
1: a data-driven one.
0: Yes, very data-driven. I love it. <laughs> so the third function here is Fogler is a pedagogic or teaching device which reinforces morals and values and builds wit. And I think about like data viz just broadly. There's a rhetoric underneath all of our data viz that's like this trust data. This is true because it's data-driven. In fact, RJ Anders' book is titled Info We Trust. Mm -hmm. Wow. There is, there's a rhetoric that data is sort of this ultimate mode of belief. And that's not true for everyone. I think that's not always true for all of us individually. We take it for granted, but there are other ways of believing something to be true, like experience. Mm -hmm. A a fun story on that. I had a a friend that really never believed in ghosts. But then he had this own experience and he called me and this is one of my favorite things I've ever heard anyone say to me. The phrasing of this was just great. He said, I don't much believe in ghosts, but I might have to reconsider. (laughs) And this spooky experience that he can't explain, but that experience is changing what he believes. It's not based on empirical data. It's based on what he saw and felt and heard in that moment. And what's interesting is even though the rhetoric of our community says trust data, there is an experiential element. We we need to see it, to trust mm-hmm. it. Um, the experience of, of seeing data helps us comprehend. There's research that shows you can take data and show it to people. And if you put the same data in a chart, no matter how it's designed, people are more likely to believe it. Um mm-hmm. It's like the underlying rhetoric. So data visualization explicitly teaches us insights about data, but it's also a sort of teaching device as a folk practice that tells us what our preferred mode of belief is as a community, what we think the right way to believe something is and how we know things to be true. And there's like an experiential element to that mode of belief. So it's, it's really interesting. And that could be unpacked a lot more too, I think.
1: Yeah, you just sent me off in a lot of different directions with that because I was thinking how interesting it is that you talk about we're meant to believe data, but you can't you can't touch data. Like you can experience something that isn't data, but it's almost like, but this is objective. I'm going to use quotation marks. This is objective data. You have to take it on faith that it's true. So now I have to believe which is a very spiritual, religious idea of how you happen to have faith in this thing that is theoretically 100% objective, but we're much more likely to believe something that we have experienced in our subjective perception of it. And so that is, like you're saying, the the folkloric side of things for data visualization is is the belief, the faith that objective data presented graphically is what is to be believed. And then you're also talking about the info we trust. I'm like, well, depending on how you emphasize the different words in that title, it's either a subset of information, it's info we trust, not this other information, or it's a dictate of information is what we trust. And I'm not sure which of those things falls in line with this conception of, of folklore here.
0: Yeah, really, really good question of, of semiotics, right? What is What does something even mean? We're like unpacking this title. We've got multiple interpretations of just three words there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But with that, there's that fourth function. So folklore is a means of applying social pressure and exercising control. And that's where I think a lot of this casual data visualization arguing for social justice and political issues comes to play. We'd have a makeover Monday come out and maybe on the topic of environmentalism. And now we have hundreds of iterations of this visual, hundreds of variants of the same visual. It's almost like fan fiction at that point, right? We've got the original quote unquote, original version. And now we have all these fan versions of it. Sometimes they weren't fans. Sometimes they were redesigning it for a reason, but A lot of times, when it's on things like environmentalism, people are putting this twist on it to push and say, "We need this to change." As a user, when you're engaging with what I made, I want you to change what you believe, and I want you to change how you behave, whether that's recycle more or vote differently, etc. There is a uh, there's a social justice element where we're we're communicating something and trying to put pressure on a topic or a cause or people. What's interesting about data relative to a lot of other folklore is this is really explicit. So we can analyze the motif and tale of Sleeping Beauty to figure out like, what does it tell society, particularly women about gender roles and like how women are supposed to behave and what's important about being a woman. I'm going to have to unpack that. And with data that's a little bit more on the surface level. I'm telling you, that this is what I believe, and I'm telling you this is what you should do. I don't know that that changes, though, the fact that it's functioning the same way, even though it's explicit. It does make it a little different than how I've seen most folklore work, but I think the function is still there and it's still the same.
1: I want to step actually outside of folklore a second, because when we're talking about being explicit in, as you said, a lot of these remixes or makeovers are they have a perspective and a point of view and a call to action for the audience. But something you said way back at the beginning of our talk was that the user is the protagonist of the story. And now we're trying to say, well, no, now you're sort of the audience of the story rather than the protagonist. How does that jive with us telling the user how to think or feel?
0: So Nancy Duart, I read some of her books because they are recommended in storytelling with data. But she said something that like really clicked for me. And it's, it's used a lot now in a lot of different kind of marketing storytelling methodologies, but your audience is Luke Skywalker and you're Yoda or Obi-Wan. So when the user is the protagonist of the story, I think in a story done well, data story done, I take on a sort of a mentorship role. Um, I provide the call to action. So you're, you're heading down this path, and I'm here to warn you about what you might encounter if you keep doing that, going down this path. And I'm here to show you a different path that I believe is a better way, and here are the various reasons. And I think data storytelling is really primed for that mode simply because data storytelling is all about showing the reasons why. And so I can be a mentor and unfold all those reasons for you. It's still up to you to make that choice. I can't force you to do it, but I can implore you as a mentor and even call out the consequences of not following through on what I recommend.
1: There's maybe a value even into having somebody, into requiring somebody to take an active step there instead of having to be passive and saying, you saying to them, go that way you say, if you go that way, these seven great things are going to happen. If you go this other way, seven bad things will happen. Layla Mannheim used to talk about this as the knowledge gap of you have to meet somebody almost to where they are, but not quite. There has to be a little bit more that they have to know or have to learn or have to do. uh, And so that they can actually take that last step and do the thing that will prompt them to change their life or take actual positive action. But I guess you're saying that explicitly telling them what to do is not as good as giving them all of the tools and being not very cryptic about what it is they need to do, but they have to take that last step on their own. And that is making them the protagonist.
0: Yeah. And I I love that you unpacked the action part of that step. It makes me think of the value behind some of the ways Robert Janizek has done some of his work. It's brilliant storytelling but he'll often start out a certain, there'd be a certain base element to the visual, but then you have to click for just the next part to appear. It's, I need you to take a step. And I always felt like his data storytelling did a really good job of kind of inviting me to walk with him, right? This is Obi-Wan that's going to get on the Millennium Falcon with me and we're going to travel together. Robert is walking me through these insights piece by piece. And One of the pieces of his that I just love is Music Memories. At the very end of Music Memories is a beautiful story about the playlist of his childhood, the songs his mother would play to him when he was a baby and like dance with him or rock him to sleep. And so he has this gorgeous playlist that he walks you through. But then at the very end, he invites you to create your own. And it's this really powerful story through his mother's life and like the music there and where Robert kind of fits in there as her son, but then takes a turn and you realize that you as an audience member have been the protagonist the entire time, because now you're asked to reflect on what this means to you as an individual. And that little action, that little step, I think really situates your role with this information and your role with this story.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen that, and I'll make sure that I put a link to it and to all of the things that we've been referencing along the way here. One last question, more about the way that we are going to be telling stories, whether from a using this knowledge that we might have about folklore, how can we be sure that we are telling our stories in the so-called right way? Yeah. <laughs> with a dramatic, dramatic lightning in the that's back, Exactly.
0: That or somebody drove into my garage. I'm pretty sure it was lightning. <laughs> so I have no idea how we're telling the right story. I think that's a million dollar question, right? If somebody can answer that, then they get all the book deals, they get all the conferences and might as well make movies about them. But <laughs> I've learned some lessons recently about the importance of this social element. So a great example from work, we were asked to redesign. This team I was on was asked to redesign this chart. We looked at it. We talked to people about how they make the chart, talked to some users about how they read the chart and how they interpret the chart. And then we redesigned it. We focused on making that data pop, um, building a stronger visual relationship between certain numbers in there so it stand out a little bit better, a complex chart. And we released it we had really negative feedback, strong negative feedback. We're like, oh, this looks like really great work. We were proud of it. We got some strong negative feedback. And we missed the social context. We missed the narratives around this. Uh, What happened is when people look at this chart, there's this narrative that they share with each other. Like in meetings, they'll reference the left side. When they're casually talking to each other, they mention the left side. When they're problem solving in workshops together or ideating, they'll talk about the left side. What the left side means based on like where all those elements of the chart were what that left side meant was these are what we believe are true about customer behaviors. And it was this sort of like plug and play. It's this narrative ready to go. You just got to fill in the data. So we know that this is the cause and effect relationship. We just need to know what direction the cause is going. So we know which direction the effect is going to go. And the moment we rearranged that chart, there was no longer a left side. We messed it all up. And so we had to rethink and re-explore that social element. It's the same thing with red and green. We're not supposed to use red and green because they're not accessible, but we literally have an informal holiday named after data visualization, colors and conditional formatting of tables. It's Black Friday. Excel spreadsheets format to not being red or green. And we decided to call that Black Friday as as a consequence because that's the day that retailers tend to go into profit um, Mm -hmm. from the red to the green. And so we start taking away red and green and we start eating away at these sort of informal and formal narratives we have around the data. So often a better answer is figuring out how to tweak things like the luminosity or the saturation so that someone can see the differences between red and green, but we still protect a lot of the powerful color associations that are built into the culture around that. That's where I've learned some lessons fairly recently was just around the fact that it's not a user looking at our chart. There's a lot surrounding it. And there's some really interesting folklore research happening to look at how these personal narratives can interfere with how we understand science communication, understand data and facts. Andrea Kidda is a folklorist that looks at public health and She's been tapped a lot of this pandemic for why are people still hesitant around the vaccine? And she's been calling out that personal narratives are really, really powerful. And just like I said before, there aren't enough personal narratives of people being happy and healthy and not getting COVID when they get the vaccine. There's lots of personal narratives around people getting sick or people experiencing negative symptoms. And those are really powerful. And no matter how strong your data story is, no matter how many insights are there, that can be really, really powerful and can mediate how we interpret a chart or even completely overturn how we interpret a chart.
1: So this all does come back to understanding elements of, of folklore. Like the, you were talking about the left side, for instance. Like this is not shorthand anywhere else in the world, but in this group of people who worked with this, that became... To mean something very specific, it became shorthand. It's lexicon that is not translatable, it's not transferable, but it is very real. And taking that meaning away led to, like you said, negative, negative feedback.
0: If you know reading a whole bunch of obscure folklore texts isn't your jam, <laughs> if you're not that kind of a nerd, you can summarize this all up as. just got to understand that the things we make the artifacts we produce they're consumed in a visual context and people interpret them socially and when they exist in the social context we have to realize that that social context can really change how we interpret things so if you want your story to work you got to do a little bit of digging and find out what that social context is not just your user but how that user works with other users and then how that might impact what people see when they look at your data. We make this for people. It's a communication tool, and we make these things for people. And if we don't take the time to center the people, our stories aren't gonna work.
1: All right, well, Josh, this was a fantastic conversation. I could go on for hours and hours talking about this stuff, but I will let you go. And I think this was just a great time. Thank you for spending an hour with us today.
0: this was absolutely delightful. We could talk about this all day as well. So thank you so much.